to the end of the story, to the coming kingdom that arrives when Jesus comes back. The book of Matthew also explains why we have a church age, and it explains the realities and the expectations of disciples during that age. Now, Matthew also has a major focus on the kingdom of God. In fact, this word kingdom appears 55 times in the book of Matthew. So it's a major emphasis, a major theme in his book. And it's also a very Jewish book. It is filled with references to the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament. It has many fulfillment statements, saying such and such happened to fulfill the words of the prophet. And so it was clearly written to a Jewish audience. Now, if we think of what was happening in the book of Acts, the gospel of Jesus Christ was going out and a few Jews, very small number of Jews, were accepting it, but by and large, the Jews were skeptical. And they were rejecting the message of the gospel. And so after a few decades of this happening, Matthew is probably writing around 50-something AD, so the gospel has been going out for two decades or so, and he is writing to Jews, trying to convince them, to prove to them that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Now, I don't blame them for having a bit of skepticism, because they would probably be asking, well, if Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah, the promised king of the Old Testament, well, they wouldn't call it the Old Testament, but if he is the promised king, where's the kingdom? Why is not the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled? Why does Israel not have all the land from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, as was promised to Abraham? Why is not a descendant of David sitting on the throne? Why are we still under Roman rule? And so they would be right to ask these questions. And so Matthew writes to these Jews to say that Jesus is indeed the king, but what happened was Israel rejected the king and the kingdom. Therefore, the kingdom has been postponed to a future generation. And in the middle, we have this intervening age, which we call the church age. Now, as we've been going through the Bible, I've mentioned a number of times that when it comes to valid application of the scripture, we must understand who we are and where we fit in the story. And as we've been going through the Old Testament, it has been very difficult for us to derive direct application for ourselves, because that's not the part of the story that we're in. But here, in Matthew, this is directly applicable, because it teaches us the realities and the expectations of disciples of Jesus. So I, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. We'll actually start at the end before jumping back to the beginning. But Matthew 28, in verses 18 to 20, the Lord gives what is commonly called the Great Commission, and he will say this. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now that, that is us. That's where we fit in the story. The, the apostles, Jesus said these words to the apostles, go make disciples, and we are spiritually the descendants of disciples who made disciples who made disciples, all the way down for 2,000 years. 
So that's where we are. And so, you know, when I, I used to read this passage, and for some reason, I would read, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And for some reason, I would think, oh, he's referring to Paul's epistles, all the commands for the church. And then it hit me more recently, obviously, he's talking about what Jesus has taught in the book of Matthew, all of the realities and expectations of disciples. And so these things uh, are, are all, Matthew is a wonderful book for us. Uh, I'd call it the ideal discipleship book. So if somebody ever asked me, Jason, could you disciple me? I would take them through the book of Matthew. I, I think it's just wonderful in that way. So let's start at the beginning, uh, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And in verse 1, it says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. So immediately, Matthew is connecting David to the Davidic, or excuse me, he's connecting Jesus to the Davidic and Abrahamic covenants. And he will, as you go through the genealogy here, we see that Jesus is indeed of the line of Judah, of the line of Abraham and Judah, and then down through David, all the way down to Jesus. So he is meeting the ancestral requirements to be the Messiah King. And that's very important, because if you're outside of that line, you could not be the king. Also, we see in verse 18, where it says that Mary, his mother, was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And that is, that's repeated by the angel in, in verse 20, where the angel says, for that which is conceived in her, in Mary, is from the Holy Spirit. And so we see that not only does he have the human lineage of Abraham and David, but he also has divine lineage. So he is the God-man. And we have known all the way since Genesis 4, verse 1, where Eve thought that her first son was Yahweh, God-man. We've been expecting a Messiah who is both divine and human. And now Matthew is saying, this is the one. He's it. In chapter 2, there is the, a contrast that Matthew shows us between these magi, these wise men who come from, probably from Babylon, and King Herod and the Jews who were there in Jerusalem. And the contrast is this. The, these Gentiles have come from afar to worship the Jewish Messiah, but when they hear that the Messiah has been born, there's alarm in Jerusalem. Instead of rejoicing and saying, what is this? This is our long-awaited Messiah. They are alarmed. And this begins Matthew's theme of Jewish rejection of the gospel. Jewish rejection of the gospel. But Gentiles who believe. And this theme will be repeated throughout Matthew's book. We also see in chapter 2, Herod's Massacre where he sets to, to kill all the, the baby boys in a certain area where the Messiah was born. And we know from that that he is of the serpent seed, because the serpent seed is always trying to cut off the line of the Messiah. He doesn't want his head to be struck, right? The serpent does not want his head struck. And then in chapter 3, in verse 1, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this word for repent, it, it's what in the Old Testament, it's translated in English as turn back. Turn back to covenant faithfulness. Return to Yahweh your God. 
And that was always the job of the prophets, to call Israel back to covenant faithfulness, that they would worship Yahweh alone. And this phrase where he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that is a Greek idiomatic expression. And what it means is, it's in the power of your choice. It is yours should you choose to accept it, if you want it. And Matthew will also point out here that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that there would be a messenger who comes before the Messiah. We sometimes call him the forerunner of the Messiah. And in verse 7, here in chapter 3, the Pharisees show up. And this is, this is kind of funny. John the Baptist will say, you brood of vipers, or more literally, you offspring of serpents. You serpent seed. So if, if you've been following the story from Genesis 3.15, the two teams, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, we know instantly that these are the bad guys and that they are going to try and kill the promised seed. In fact, that's exactly what they do. After this, we have the baptism of Jesus where we find that the testimony of God the Father and God the Spirit identify Jesus as God the Son, as the promised Messiah. All of these things are, are pointing towards the identity of Christ. In chapter 4, Jesus will go into the desert and be tempted by Satan. And notice in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, it will say this, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now this is the same old temptation that we saw Cain run into back in Genesis 4, verse 7, where Cain desired to, uh, where the serpent desired to deceive Cain and allow him to rule with him. Because the, the serpent is ruling the world, and he wants to deceive the offspring of the woman into ruling with him. But unlike Cain, Jesus didn't fall for it. He overcame the serpent himself. And if he overcame the serpent, we know he can also overcome the seed of the serpent. So these four first chapters are all proving that Jesus Christ is of the right genealogy. He's from the line of David. He has the divine credentials as well, being born of the Holy Spirit. He is God with us, Emmanuel. We see from Herod's massacre, Herod being the seed of the serpent, trying to wipe out the promised seed. That's a, that's a testimony from the other side. And we have the testimony of the prophet, John the Baptist, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit all identifying Jesus as the promised Messiah. And in the midst of all of this, Matthew has several fulfillment statements, saying this happened to fulfill what the prophet wrote. So Matthew is, like a lawyer, he's building a cumulative case, arguing for the identity of Jesus as the king. And then we will enter the famous Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. So at the end of chapter 4, Jesus will gather his first disciples, and then he will teach them the ethics of the kingdom, or we could say the philosophy of Jesus. And, and this is where it gets very applicable, directly applicable for you and me as kingdom people, as disciples of Jesus. This is where we start to really pay attention for our lives and apply this. So Jesus will not only teach the ethics of the kingdom, but he will also attack the philosophy of the Pharisees. And he will show that they not only misinterpreted the law, but they had a misunderstanding of, their, of themselves. 
Basically, the Pharisees thought they were righteous. They were good enough. In fact, if you did a random survey of people, just ask them, you know, if you died, why would God let you into heaven? And most people, apparently, when this question is asked, they say, well, I'm a good person. Okay, thank you. You're a Pharisee. You're a serpent seed. That won't cut it. But the reality that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount is that perfection is required to enter the kingdom of God. Perfection is required, and the self-righteous will not be good enough to enter the kingdom. But there's good news, because Jesus perfectly fulfills the law, and he is willing to grant his righteousness to you if you humbly ask. Uh, marvelous part, and this is directly to the gospel message, when we think about that, it requires humility. And he teaches the reality that for those who follow Jesus, we should expect persecution in this age, but there will be rewards in the next. He teaches that there will be a coming judgment. Uh, this would be in, in chapter 7, that there would be many false disciples, those who name the name of Christ, and yet on that day of judgment, they will be shocked to find out that they're condemned. And the reason why, they'll claim, but Lord, we did this, and we did that, and we did the other thing. In other words, they're saying, I did it on my own. I earned my way. Like, Thank you, that's the Pharisees' view of earning it your own way. They thought they were self-righteous. The sermon also teaches many of the expectations of disciples. It teaches us about prayer, how to pray, what should the content of our prayer be. It teaches us about dealing with sin, living righteously. It teaches us the need to reconcile with those who offend us. It teaches us to love others, including our enemies. It teaches us to not live in a state of worry, but rather to live in faith, trusting God. It teaches us to speak truth, not lie. And it teaches us about our attitude toward earthly possessions, money, and things of this world, contrasted with heavenly treasure. But if we could summarize everything, the, the message of the Sermon on the Mount is that we need to ask Jesus for the perfect righteousness that he will grant us if we humbly ask. And in fact, as examples of that, moving straight into chapter 8, it's really not a, a new topic at all, but the first thing that happens is a leper will ask for cleansing, and Jesus will cleanse it. very next thing, a centurion will ask for the healing of a servant. And Jesus will grant that healing as well. And so Matthew is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. If Jesus will grant cleansing and healing, which don't get you into the kingdom, as great as they are, how much more will he grant you the righteousness that you need to enter the kingdom of God? And of course, we notice the, the posture of these who asked. The, the leper bowed down, the centurion begged, the centurion recognized his own unworthiness. So going through Matthew 8 and 9, we will find that Jesus heals the sick, he raises the dead, he controls the weather, he casts out demons, forgives sins. He shows that he has authority to add new divine revelation on top of the Hebrew scriptures. And he remained undefiled by touching those who were diseased and by eating with sinners. So all of these were demonstrations of Jesus' power 
demonstrations of his divine identity. And they were demonstrations of prophetic fulfillment. In fact, Isaiah in chapter 53 and chapter 35 had given many of these signs that when the Messiah comes, this is what it will be like. In fact, in, in chapter 927, there are two blind men, and it says this, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. And, and the point is, the signs are so obvious that Jesus is the Messiah, even the blind men can see it. Right? So there's a little bit of irony here. But then in verse 34, by contrast, the Pharisees, the Pharisees say, oh, he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. So the blind man can see that he's the Messiah, but the Pharisees, who can see with their eyes, are blind to the spiritual reality. And as the leaders of Israel, they are representing the nation, and Matthew is building up this pattern of Jewish rejection, which began back with Herod and the people in Jerusalem back in chapter 2. In chapter 9, verse 35, it will say this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now Matthew will write the word gospel four times in his book. And three of those four times, it is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom good news of the kingdom. Jesus was sharing the message to Israel that the king has come, the kingdom is at hand, it is in your power of choice, should you choose to accept it. And in chapter 10, Jesus will then send all of his disciples out to the entire nation so that everyone in Israel can hear the message that the king is here and the kingdom is at hand. And Jesus would delegate his authority to give them signs and wonders and miracles so that not only could they say the king is here, but they have the signs that validate their message as well. So all Israel would hear the message. And, and the point that's important here is that we're building up to chapter 12, which is a really pivotal place where Israel will fully and finally reject their Messiah. And the point is, they can't claim that they never heard. They can't claim, I didn't know about it. All of Israel heard the message of the, the Messiah. In fact, in chapter 11, Matthew will point out that the nation is guilty of rejecting both the forerunner, John the Baptist, and the Messiah. And it was like John was there in the wilderness eating honey and locusts, and they rejected him. And then Jesus came, and he's feasting and, and drinking wine, and they reject him as well. So. The problem is not with the messengers. The problem is with the recipients of the message. Nothing would satisfy them. So in chapter 12, this is a very, very pivotal chapter, as I mentioned. This is a turning point for Israel. In chapter 12, verse 22, there's a great healing that Jesus performs. And in, in 23, the people are amazed, and they said, can this be the son of David? Son of David, a messianic term. Can Jesus be the Messiah? I think they're genuinely wondering here. Can it be? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Okay, so they're attributing the works of God to the works of the devil. 
And in verse 24, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I just read verse 24. Uh, this is what, in verse 31, the Lord Jesus will call blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now this blasphemy of the Spirit is not something that you or I could commit today. This is a, a one-time national sin that only Israel of the first century could be guilty of. Because the Messiah was there in their midst, walked the streets of their villages. They saw him. <laughs> they heard him. And yet they rejected him and his message. So that is what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And he will go on in the rest of chapter 12 to say that Back in Nineveh's day, Nineveh was a very wicked, wicked city. They repented when Jonah preached to them. And he'll talk about how the Queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And he'll say, someone greater than Solomon is here. Someone greater than Jonah is here. And so this, this is it for Israel. Their, their fate has been sealed. They stand condemned, guilty of rejecting their Messiah. And Jesus has prophetically declared their judgment. So let's, let's step back and, and just think hypothetically, what could have happened if they had accepted the king and the message? Well, they would have said, okay, Jesus, you're the king. You're the Messiah. We believe it. They would have crowned him king. And then Rome would say, oh, hold on. There's a rebellion going on down in Israel. So they would come, they would find, well, who's the leader of this rebellion? Oh, some guy named Jesus. Well, we're going to deal with this rebel the way we do with all rebels. We're going to crucify him. That's what the Romans did. So they would have crucified Jesus, would have died, buried, resurrected three days later, ascended to heaven. And then, in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy that there were a period of 70 weeks for Israel, 69 had been accomplished, there would be the final seven years of tribulation that would come upon the nation Israel, and Rome would break into some ten-king formation, uh, as we read in the book of Daniel last week. And at the end of that period of intense tribulation, the Lord would have come back and established his kingdom. So Israel would have their kingdom. Of course, that's all hypothetical. That's not what actually happened. And what Matthew is writing about uh, his overall message is to say, yes, the king came, but the nation rejected him. And so the kingdom has been postponed to a future generation. And now what we have is this intervening age called the church age. And this is what chapter 13 is all about. So we, we, you know, we kind of wonder, well, what happened since they rejected the king and the kingdom? Did God cancel his plans for a kingdom? Did he change his plans? Did, did a physical and earthly and political kingdom suddenly become only a spiritual kingdom? Well, I would suggest it has not been canceled. It has not been changed. It's only postponed. And instead of the kingdom immediately, we have the church age now. And, and so these parables in Matthew 13 explain the realities of the church age. And so it's these are very good for helping us understand and generate a philosophy of ministry for our churches. Uh, for example, in the first parable, there are four soils, and there's a sower who sows seed in these four soils. And what the Lord will 
interpret out of this parable is that the four soils are different heart conditions. And the, the, the seed is the gospel message. And what it teaches is that only a fractional amount of people will respond to the gospel in a way that bears fruit. And so we don't expect the whole world to get saved. We can always expect that there, there will be those who reject the message of the gospel. And after that, we have the parable of the wheat and the tares, which teach us that in the church age, there are two sides. There's, there's the farmer who is planting good seed. That's like the church, the, the, planting, uh, the gospel message. And there's the enemy who is planting thorns, tares. And, and they both grow side by side. So we understand that there are two kingdoms working side by side through the entire church age uh, in opposition to one another. And it's only at the end that it will all get sorted out. Then we have the parable of the mustard seed, which becomes a tree. Now what's interesting here is that mustard seeds grow into plants, garden plants, not trees, two different species. And so if you planted a, a seed expecting one thing and it became something else, and in fact a large monstrosity, something has gone wrong. And it talks about birds dwelling in this tree. Now, birds have previously been identified in the first parable as the agents of Satan. So what he's saying is that the church will grow into some kind of monstrosity it was never supposed to be, and it will harbor the agents of Satan. Then we have the parable of leaven. Now, all through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, leaven is always bad. If leaven were good, in this parable, this would be the only place in scripture. So it, it represents evil, moral corruption, doctrinal corruption, and, and basically teaches us that the church will become corrupted. And in fact, we see this in the epistles. Paul, Peter, Jude, uh, always writing about how the church is being infiltrated by false teachers, and how that kind of apostasy has just grown through the 2,000 years of church history. But there's always, there's always a faithful remnant, a small and faithful remnant. And that's the kind of church that we desire to be. Now, for the sake of time, we have to move on. But I, I do want to close this chapter with verse 52, where he says this. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And that, that's the final parable that Jesus will teach in this, past, in this uh, chapter. And what he's basically saying is these newly announced truths about the church age do not replace or change the Old Testament truths about the kingdom and its physical, earthly nature for Israel. But rather, you take them both together. There's still a physical, earthly kingdom coming for Israel. But in addition to that truth, we now have the church age. So you take what is old and what is new as well. And to just summarize from Matthew 14 to 17, there will be further hostility between Jesus and the religious leaders. That conflict will grow, and of course Matthew is setting us up for the eventual assassination of Jesus. And this rejection by the Jews is contrasted by several episodes where Gentiles, in fact, accept the Lord Jesus. And Matthew will further prove the identity of Jesus as king with the famous declaration of Peter. 
when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And Jesus said, you are the Christ. That's, that's the question every single one of us has to ask. Who do you say Jesus is? And your eternal destiny depends on how you answer that question. But Matthew will go from there to the transfiguration, well, where Jesus reveals his heavenly glory to his disciples. Moses and Elijah are there, acting as witnesses who testify to the identity of Jesus. And then in chapter 18, Jesus will teach his disciples more about the realities and expectations of disciples. In fact, chapter 18 and going into chapter 19 is a dis uh, an extended discourse on sin. He starts by teaching us about the severity and seriousness of sin and how extremely dangerous it is to lead others into sin, especially children. He teaches us that when a brother or sister goes off into sin, that we actively seek them out. We actively bring them back. We want to restore them. And he, he defines how to do that process of restoration. First, you confront them one-on-one. On, one on one. If, they, if they don't repent with that, then you take two or three other witnesses. If they still don't repent, then you bring them before the whole church. And this is, is the process that we call church discipline. And then he will go on to a lengthy section about the necessity of forgiving those who have sinned. So, yes, sin happens. Yes, we find that. Yes, it's necessary to confront that. But we also need to go with forgiving hearts. In fact, that section continues right into chapter 19 about divorce. If it has reached a point in your marriage where your spouse wants to divorce you, effectively, they have become your enemy. But Christians love their enemies, even if it costs us a lot. And so the question might come up, well, if we're always loving our enemies so much and bending over backwards for them, they might take advantage of us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, chapter 20 will point out that disciples will face suffering, will face difficulties. But in both chapters 19 and 20, God uh, will reward those who give up the things in this life, including bending over backwards out of love for your enemies, and that we can trust God's generosity and graciousness in rewarding us in the next life. Chapter 21 will take us to the Pharisees once again, these serpent seed. And Jesus will tell a parable about the Pharisees, and it will end in this way. Chapter 21, verse 31, uh, it will say, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. In other words, these terrible sinners, the bottom rung of society, will enter the kingdom of God before the Pharisees, before these religious leaders who were self-righteous. And the reason why is because they have asked for the imputed righteousness the righteousness that Jesus will grant you if you humbly ask. The Pharisees, by contrast, were st still depending on their own self-righteousness, their own works, earning their way to heaven. And the conclusion of that section is in verse 43, where Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, okay? he had offered the kingdom, 
and given to a people producing its fruits. And I think that's referring to the, the final generation when, when the Lord returns. It will be given to that generation. So chapter 22, and there will be more conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And then in chapter 23, it's all, almost humorous the way Jesus takes the Pharisees to task. He, woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites. I mean, he really lets them have it. And it's the heavy condemnation come upon them. For example, in 23, uh, verse 35, it will say that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. And he says from the time of Abel at the beginning to, the, to uh, Zechariah, who was near the end of the Old Testament times. So all the blood of the martyrs will fall upon that generation of Israel, the one that rejected Jesus. Verse 36 says, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. He, he will ask them in verse 33, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And the point is, they're not going to escape being sentenced to hell. And with the incredible guilt that is upon them, this teaches us that while everybody in hell will suffer, there are differing levels of suffering, depending on the level of guilt you accumulate. And, and I think this generation particularly has a heavy burden because the revelation of the Messiah came to them. He walked their villages. He walked the shores of Galilee. They heard him speak, saw his miracles, and they still rejected him. And, and I think for us in our time today, it, it's similar in that someone who has heard the gospel and rejected it bears more guilt than someone who dies and has never heard the gospel. So the more revelation we have, the more we are accountable for. So it's a very sobering lesson for us to, to think about in that. In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus will turn his attention to future things. His disciples will ask about the signs of his coming, his second coming. Now, next week, we will spend the entire message on the tribulation period. So we'll go into this in some detail. I'll just give a high level right now. But Jesus will walk them through the conditions of the tribulation. He'll talk about the wars and famines and, and death. And then after that, in chapter 24, verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He's talking about the second coming of Christ here. And after that, Jesus will teach that he will take the nation Israel into judgment, and that only those who are spiritually prepared at that time may enter the kingdom. Now, how, did, how would they get spiritually prepared? Those who have asked for the righteousness of Jesus. Those are the ones who are spiritually prepared. So there's a, a Jewish judgment, and following that, there's a Gentile judgment. And again, only the spiritually prepared will be granted entrance into the kingdom at that time. But Matthew, all along, has been hinting at Gentile inclusion in the kingdom. And, and here we see that when it finally happens, Indeed, there's a multitude from the Gentiles who will enter the kingdom. In chapter 26 and 27, we find the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. 
famous disciple. We find the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion of Jesus, and of course his resurrection. We all know this story. And what's interesting about the crucifixion is if we think back to Genesis 3.15, God has said to the serpent, you will strike his heel. Now, for a long time, Christians, and if you've watched any of these Jesus movies, they usually portray it as the wooden post here, the feet, if these were feet, like that, and the nail being driven through the feet. But not too long ago, it's fairly recent, that archaeologists discovered bone fragments of a crucifixion. It, it was the foot bones. And in fact, if this were the post, the feet go on the side, and the nail goes through the back of the foot, through the heel, as it were. So you will strike his heel, and there it was. That's the cross. So that's Genesis 3.15, trying to cut off the Messiah. Obviously, they didn't know about the resurrection. But the resurrection itself was the ultimate vindication of Jesus' identity as the Messiah King. And he will, uh, when his followers, uh, there's some of the women who go on that first Sunday morning, they go to anoint the body of Jesus, and they run into some angels at the tomb. And the angels show them, look, his body's not here, he's gone, he's raised, just as he said. And then he says, uh, the angel said, go and tell your disciples, uh, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you into Galilee. So there you will see him. And so the disciples do go to Galilee. And we find that down in verse 16. This is right at the end of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples, 11 because Judas is gone at this point, they went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Wow, some doubted. And I think that Matthew includes that phrase here because he knows of those who would read his gospel, any of those who are hearing this message this morning, there are some who might doubt the identity of Jesus. And so if that's, if that's you today, I would implore you to think about all that has come to pass in the book of Matthew, how Matthew lays out the case, point by point by point, that Jesus is truly the Messiah King, and that you can enter the kingdom if you ask him for the imputed righteousness that he is freely willing to give if you ask humbly from your heart. So please think about that. If you have questions about that, or maybe you're not sure about something, please feel free to meet with me after the service, or you can call the, the church phone number that we've posted earlier, and I'd be happy to meet with you and talk about that. After those debtors, we get to the, back to the Great Commission, where we started. Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. We see here that discipleship 
is a two-step process. Step one is conversion, which is followed by baptism as an outward sign of the inward reality of identifying with Jesus Christ. Step two is teaching the commands of Jesus. And, and that's why I love the book of Matthew so much, so practical, showing who Jesus is and teaching us all about the realities and expectations of being a disciple. So I think this is the perfect discipleship book. If you ever want to disciple someone, go ahead and walk them through the book of Matthew. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And it's also a marvelous book in terms of connecting the whole story together. How it connects Jesus back to Genesis 3.15, back to the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, back to the Messianic prophecies that the prophets of the Old Testament gave. It connects the second coming of Jesus to the arrival of the kingdom. It explains how Israel had rejected the king and the kingdom, therefore it was postponed. And it explains, uh, critically for us, what the church age is and what we should be doing during this time. So there's much that we can apply from the book of Matthew. And in our big series of Genesis to Revelation in just two months, Matthew, unfortunately, is the only book that we can spend on uh, looking at the church age itself. Next week, we will look at the tribulation period in depth. Now, there is actually more written in the whole Bible, if you add it all up, about the tribulation than the four Gospels put together. The point is, the Bible says a lot about the tribulation period, so it's a very fascinating time. That will be next week, and the week after that will be my final Friday with you, and we will look at the kingdom age. What will the kingdom be like? What will it be like when we live in the kingdom? Well, we'll invite Lauren back up for another song. But let me pray for us in closing, and then we'll sing. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for inspiring Matthew to write these words. Thank you for this marvelous gospel that explains so much to us about realities of the kingdom, about the church age, realities and expectations of discipleship. Please help us to take these to heart and to live them out. Please help those who maybe are unsure about your identity, that instead of doubting, they would accept the words of Matthew as true, that all the testimony points to Jesus Christ as the true Messiah of God. Please draw more people to yourself, that salvation would grow that this church would grow as well. So we thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for this message. And I pray that you help us and strengthen us to live out these expectations and realities as your disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.